we're going to look at. Now, as you know, this uh, so many things um, in the Bible. There are there are these things called types and antitypes. If you've heard of that, uh, an antitype is the fulfillment of an earlier truth. So, an antitype in the New Testament is foreshadowed by a type in the Old Testament. Got that? No problem. Uh, in fact, there's a saying, a really kind of snazzy saying, that um, the new, speaking about the new in the Old Testament, the new is in the old contained. The old is by the new explained. And so there's so many truths, so many things in the Old Testament that we don't even realize. And of course, some people run with it. And they see types in every crevice, in every article, I mean, you know, anything in the Bible. But there's, there's clearly types in the Bible that are then fulfilled uh, in the New Testament. And one of, the, one of the ways, one of the things that is very commonly used to convey the idea of a type and this, this corollary between the type and the anti-type are, are two words, as and so. Let me give you an example, a couple examples. In 1 Corinthians 15.22, the Bible says, As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So Adam is a type of Christ. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 37, As in the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So even the time period of Noah's time was a a type, it was like a picture in some ways of the time it was going to be when Jesus would come. John chapter 3 and verse 14. As Moses was as Moses lifted up the servant serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Remember when Moses, everybody was bit, and then he held up the serpent, and everybody that looked was healed? Who wouldn't thought? But that was a type of Jesus Christ being lifted up on Calvary. See, God had this whole thing planned out. And the one who knows the end from the beginning and is eternal, uh, there's so many intricate things that were happening that were fulfilled in the New Testament. Here's another one, Matthew 12, 40. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so over and over again, we see this picture. Now, we are going to look at one aspect tonight that was celebrated uh, by a Jewish holiday called Yom Kippur, the Day of, of, of Atonement. And there was one aspect that was actually uh, part of, and, and we're going to eventually go to Leviticus. You don't want to turn there. Turn to Leviticus 16. Because we are going to see a picture that would eventually be fulfilled in Christ. And it had to do with one part of the sacrificial, the ceremonial um, sacrifices. And on, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they did this every year. Moses and Aaron were instructed, uh, in fact, look at Leviticus 16 and verse 5, every year they had to select two goats. And those goats were significant. Look at Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 5. And he shall take the children of the and he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel 
two kids of the goats. And by the way, this goes back to Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 23. The Hebrew term literally speaks of a male goat because that's the way it was uh, translated and that's what's required in Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 23. So every year they had to take two goats, two male goats, for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So it's just part of the sacrificial system, something they had to do every, every year at Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And one of the things they had to do is take two goats and one ram. The ram, we're going to leave him alone tonight. We're going to talk about the two goats, because one of them in particular is what we're going to focus on tonight. Uh, the first goat was to be used as a sin offering. Um, in fact, that's written in... Oh, no, let me just... That, that was... The first goat was to be used, and this is continued there in, in Leviticus 16 after verse 5. That first goat would uh, atone for the sins of the, and the transgressions of the people. It would be killed. Its blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. And God would view the blood of the sin offering and have mercy on his people and forgive their sins. And that was every year. Uh, this, this shed blood of the goat, sprinkled on the mercy seat, uh, and God would forgive their sins. But keep in mind, all these things that were laid out, especially the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, they were all types. And we're going to learn later on in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 that they really, in and of themselves, that's not where the power was. Not at all. But God could accept it from the Jewish person because God foreknew what he was going to do. And so he would look at the blood, he would foresee his ultimate gift of Jesus Christ, and he would forgive them. In fact, um, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, listen to what the Bible says. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preach before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. That's just one example where the writer Paul goes back to the Old Testament. And by the way, we look at uh, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 15, and other places in the scriptures where we learn that when these offerings were taking place, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. That's written in Hebrews very clearly. We'll look at that maybe. But God accepted that because as he saw these offerings being done, like these two goats, the one that was killed and the, the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, he could foresee what he was going to do on Calvary, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb that was slain. And so he could accept it. So that was the first goat. And that, we're going to leave him alone now, although he's dead now, isn't he? So we're going to look at the second goat, because that's the one that's significant. Leviticus 16 and verse 21. And this was a very symbolic act. Keep that in mind. And Aaron shall lay both, hands, both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat. Wow, how do you put your sin on the head of a goat? 
I'd like to know how we can cause our sin to go out from us <laughs> and onto something else. It's a picture. You get this, right? This is totally symbolic. It's not that some weird thing was going on and when Aaron put his hand on the, on the goat that the goat felt this electrical pulse as the sin of the people went into him. This is purely symbolic. And so, as Aaron would confess, and I don't imagine, there's no record, that like everybody had to list all their sins for the previous year. Because uh, that, that ceremony would have taken quite a long time, wouldn't it? It was just, it was all figurative. Now, obviously, they'd confess their sins in a very general way. And so, theoretically, all the sin of the people was put on the goats. In the same way as that first one. And then the goat was sacrificed, sins would be forgiven. But the, now they did something different with the second goat. The Azazel is the Hebrew word. And it's used four times, only found in Leviticus chapter 16. It's a Hebrew word, Azazel. And uh, it would become a brand new English word when William Tyndale would translate his Bible in 1530. And it's a word we use all the time. Many people use it not even realizing it comes from the scriptures and from uh, the great William Tyndale. So this Azazel was released into the wilderness. In fact, look what it says. Um, let's, again, verse 21. Luke, Luke, Leviticus 16 and verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. Verse 22. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities. Did you get that? Now this again is a picture of the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let, let go the goat in the wilderness. Now this was a picture. God was communicating to them in a very real way. Because God knows how sin affects us, doesn't he? Sin don't you wish, I'm getting a bad memory, I wish that the only thing I could forget was my sin. And all the important things and all the blessings especially, I never forgot. But as no sooner do I commit a sin, then boop, it's, well, okay, I've got to confess it first, then it's gone. Wouldn't that be great? Does it work that way? No, because there's, there is this being out there called the accuser of the brethren who has a very crafty ways, fine-tuned his skill for centuries. And he has a way of accusing us, using guilt to get us stuck. And I, you know, people haven't changed, folks. The Jews... They had a conscience. They had, this, they had to deal with sin. They had the same thing we did. But what an amazing thing. Now God, God's saying, I want you to see something here. You're, all your sin now, just imagine that it's being transferred on the goats. Now you could say, that poor little goat. 
He didn't do anything wrong. He's just going away minding his own goat business. And all of a sudden, he's going to take him the, on him the sins of the whole people? Everyone? It was a picture. It needed to be done because of something God was going to do. And so, literally, again, look at verse 22. The goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities. And then they let him go into a land uninhabited. And this would drive home a point that God communicated in various ways to the people of God. Psalm 103, verse 12, one example. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. I'll never forget the first time as a young Christian that I heard the the distinction uh, where the preacher made the statement. He said, you notice it doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. It says as far as the east is from the west. I thought, okay, they picked two directions. What's the big deal? North, south, east, west. We get the picture. Two opposite directions. And then he brought up the point. If you're traveling and you go north, you don't, you, you're going to only go a certain amount of place and pretty soon you're going to be going south again, right? I mean, if you go, all, just picture the globe. You travel north. Here we are in North America. We go up, 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 up. And eventually, we're going down, 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 down. So north and south is, fine, er, is not infinite. It has a, a beginning and end. But east and west, when you travel east, how long can you travel east? Just continually, right? And west. You can travel west to no end. And God says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. God wanted to communicate to the people of of Israel and to us that there is forgiveness of sins, the sins that haunt us, the sins that torment us. God says, you're going to put them on that goat. And he is, going to, he is going to escape. Bye-bye. Never to be seen again. A couple more verses. Jeremiah 31, 34. God says, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. That phrase, remember their sins no more, is found in um, Isaiah 43, 25, Hebrews 8, 12, Hebrews 10, 17. Their sins, I will remember their sins no more. That is such a blessed truth. So now, here we are, 1530. Uh, William Tyndale is the, the first person to translate the Old Testament into English from the Hebrew. Now, now uh, Wycliffe, John Wycliffe had already done that. Trans- in other words, he, he gave us our first English Bible, the Old Testament, but his wasn't translated directly out of the Hebrew. His was translated out of the Latin Vulgate. But it was still giving people the word in the common tongue. William Tyndale comes along and uh, he would take the Hebrew. And unfortunately, uh, he did not live long enough to complete the whole work. And oh, how we have, the world has lost out on a lot because of that. So William Tyndale is translating Leviticus, and he comes to Leviticus chapter 16. In fact, this was, he, William Tyndale, because he was bringing the Hebrew into the English, 
He had to make up some words to help convey the meaning of the Hebrew in English because there were you know, limited English words. There were certain Hebrew words where there was really no English word that could fit. And so many, many, uh, there are literally dozens and dozens of words that are in our English language that were coined by William Tyndale. And one of them, he comes to this Azazel. And by the way, up to that point, the, uh, like for example, Wycliffe, because it had been translated into English, and um, Wycliffe and several, a couple other early translators of, into English had taken the, um, the, the term that the, the Greek translation and the term of the Latin translation, and had just used them. For example, the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, which was very popular, the word tragos apopompias, which is a goat sent out. And literally, it was actually this word azazel is a compound word. And, and so the Greek translated the goat that was sent out. That's pretty good because you got the goat that stays, He's under the Lord. He gets sacrificed for our sin. And then you get the goat that bears our sin and he goes out. And then the Latin was caper emissarius, which literally means the emissary goat. Those are the early English translations. So William Tyndale comes along and he wanted to find a word that would communicate this Hebrew word Azazel. And he came up with the word scapegoat. Now it's interesting because what is a scapegoat? A scapegoat is someone that takes the fall for someone else, right? This person was the scapegoat. We get that from this term and this concept. Here's this little donkey and he's bearing the sins of the people and, he, and he's, he's left, he runs away. What an amazing thing. The Azazel. So let's now go to John chapter 19. We find the anti-type. The type is the, the scapegoat now. We're going to call it the scapegoat. That's how it's translated. Uh, when William Tyndale translated it, scapegoat. And then the Geneva Bible translated it, scapegoat. Or back then it was scapegoat, G-O-O-T. And then um, the Bishop's Bible translated it, scapegoat. And then, and then um, the King James translators came and they, uh, they translated it scapegoat too. So this all goes back to William Tyndale. It's really his translation. Now let's look at John chapter 19. We see here that uh, Jesus Christ, we read th- this evening about all the, all the persecution. The, it's just, just horrible. He, Jesus Christ had spent all night in agony, if you remember, the Garden of Gethsemane. Then he spent the early morning in the hall of Caiaphas. And then he was hurried. Uh, he had a very busy morning. He was hurried from Caiaphas to Pilate. And then from Pilate to Herod. And then from Herod back to Pilate. He had little sleep. He had little, no nourishment. Little strength. And uh, they were out for his blood. They were just trying to find fault so they could accuse him. And it worked. They were able to get the crowd to say, crucify him, even when Pilate was reluctant. In fact, verse 15 of John chapter 19, they cried out, away with him, away with him, 
Crucify him, Pilate saith unto them. Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and they led him away. Spurgeon puts it so eloquently when he says this. What learn we here as we see our blessed Lord led forth? Do we not perceive that truth which was set forth in shadow by the scapegoat? Did not the high priest bring the scapegoat and put both his hands upon its head, confessing the sins of the people, that thus those sins might be laid upon the goat and cease from the people? Oh, I love that. Do you see that? Because, folks, that is what is happening. Just as they led the scapegoat away, they led Jesus away. Innocent, but with purpose. Again, why was the scapegoat let out? Because he was, all the people had just dumped all their sins on the scapegoat. They, they could say bye. In fact, you picture it. Because this, this was the picture. As the fit, and they, this, was, this was a very important responsibility. The man that took the scapegoat had to be in shape. I'm not sure why, would just, you know. But he had to be in shape. And he took the scapegoat out. And as all the people look, it's as if they were saying goodbye to all their sin. Now remember, this was something, and we'll look at this maybe in a minute, but this was something that had to be done year after year after year. So, in fact, the, the writer of Hebrews points out that it, it didn't quite address the conscience as something else does. So they led them out. And now, as, as Spurgeon said, he put both his hands upon its head, confessing the sins of the people, that thus those sins might be laid upon the goat and cease from the people. You know what that is, folks? That is called the doctrine of imputation. And it is a precious, precious biblical truth. Three parts of imputation. First of all, it's not the fun one. Adam's sin is imputed to the human race. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world... And death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. You and I inherited Adam's sin. That's imputation. We were born in trespasses and sin. But then, the next two are what Martin Luther calls the glorious exchange. Man's sin is imputed to Christ. By the way, what's the word impute mean? The word impute literally uh, speaks of attributing, the idea of a the idea of imputing is to attribute or charge someone with something. Uh, so when they, if, if we're going to impute something, that means we're making a charge or an accusation. And so the idea has to be charging something to someone's account. And so the idea here is man's sin was imputed to Jesus Christ. Just like that, just like the scapegoat. He put his hands on, he confessed all the sins of the people, and literally, if you can picture it in their mind, this was God saying, okay, I, am, I have the ability to take away your sin. Say goodbye to it. And I want it to be a visual picture. I'm going to give you this goat, and we're going to just pretend that all your sins are on that goat, 
And he's going to go away never to be seen again. Because that's what I'm doing with your sin. And then the third part is Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Listen to what Paul said. In fact, in Philippians 3.9, he said, And be found in him, speaking of Jesus, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul said, I don't have my own righteousness. He was honest. He said, but I do have the righteousness of Christ. So let's talk about this for a minute. The stigma of the scapegoat. There's an interesting nugget in Jewish history found in the... um, the Talmud, and please keep in mind the Talmud is Jewish tradition that has been recorded down through the years. And it is not, you know, there's a lot of T's when it comes to the Jewish literature. The Talmud is not on the same level as the Torah and the Tanakh. And the Tanakh is a T because it's the T from Torah. But that's, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, which is, Give my inspiration of God. The Tanakh is what we would call our, the Old Testament. Broken into three, the way the Jewish people looked at it. So, but the, the Talmud, uh, we, we learned some things about Jewish history. And apparently, they had a practice. And I want to relate to you this story that I, I haven't shared this in a long time. It was actually, there was a Baptist mid-missions at a magazine back in the 1990s called uh, Shofar. It was, I, I believe the editor was Glenn Segrist. I've, I actually met him and talked to him. And uh, he had this, in the early 90s, one of the Shofar magazines had this, related this story that I've since dug up some more information about it. Actually called him to inquire about this. It's a fascinating story. But keep in mind, this is not in the Bible, but it's an interesting story from Jewish history. That, and the Talmud records all this, what I'm about to tell you, that, uh, in fact, um, remember now, the word Azazel was translated scapegoat in 1530. But the word Azazel, if you look a lot of Jewish sources, many of them believe, and many of them will tell you, the word Azazel refers to a sharp, rocky cliff that the scapegoat would be pushed off of. Because apparently, here's what happened. Apparently. You know, and, and you get the, get the symbolism. Imagine you're a Jew, and you're... Maybe you had a really bad year. You just made so many bad choices and you're feeling guilty and you're looking forward to the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and just uh, dealing with this. Kind of like communion for us, you know. And, and as, you're, you're, as you're there, the high priest is putting his hands. Maybe you even get to see the high priest putting his hands on the goat's head. And you're thinking, there goes my sin. Man, I treated my wife, that, 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 that's on there. Ah, remember that time I said that? Oh, that's on there. And we're just putting it all in there. And then, and then the fit man goes, whoa, look at that guy's in shape. He takes the scapegoat, and he's gone. And you just look, and he's gone. Now, they had this thing that they must have done in the first few centuries here and prior that uh, is, is recorded in the Talmud. Uh, in fact, let me read to you from, uh, from the Talmud. A man was selected, preferably a priest, to take the goat to the precipice in the wilderness, and he was accompanied part of the way by the most eminent men of Jerusalem. So apparently, maybe once or twice, the goat wandered back into camp. 
Now, if you realize the symbolism, that's not a good sign. <laughs> you know, you're like, wait a minute, the whole the whole thing is, Mr. Goat, please don't ever come back because God doesn't remember our sin anymore. How appropriate the goat comes back. You know, does the goat come back in your life, you know, sometimes? And so they thought, we got we gotta deal with this. And so they came up with this practice, and it became so official that uh, every year a man was selected, he'd take the goat to the precipice, and um, they would choose the most eminent men of Jerusalem. And then ten booths had been constructed at intervals along the road leading from Jerusalem to the steep mountain, or Azazel, as some people called it. When he reached the tenth booth, those who accompanied him proceeded no further, but watched the ceremony from a distance. When he came to the precipice, he pushed the goat down. They said, okay, we're, we are not going to have this problem. And so the poor goat, not only was he bearing the sins of all the people, but they pushed him over the precipice. And it was a very, very tall, very, far, you know, very high with rocky crags, and he'd break all his bones going down, and there was no way he was coming back into the camp. And then they would send word. Remember the ten booths they, along the location? They would send word back. In fact, the whole, the whole Yom Kippur, the service was post, you know, as soon as that goat was going out, they wouldn't continue the services until they were sure and they got confirmation that the scapegoat was killed. So there'd be a long pause. And then when the scapegoat was pushed over the mountain, the one, one you, you know, you got all these... Um, posts, and the one guy would, would they do flags, and then they would say the word "tetelestai," which was Greek, which was used then, and that uh, that literally means "it is finished, it's done." So imagine the one "tetelestai," and all the way back on the road till it gets to Jerusalem, "tetelestai," and then they and then they went on with the service, continued what they were doing. Now, I want you to take your Bible. I want you to go to John chapter 19. Actually, you're probably there, aren't you? I want you to look at verse 30. Jesus is on the cross now. And when Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, now we see three English words here. It's one Greek word, tetelestai. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. I remind you that Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I have the power to take it up. I have the power to give it. This was not, all right, Jesus died. You know, he fought hard and then he finally expired. No, he gave up the ghost. This was his decision. But he had a job to do. And when he said that, that same word that was heralded back all the way, it's finished. To tell us die. That's what he cried from the cross. What was he saying? It's finished. What's finished? I remind you, I remind you folks that the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, God, made Him to be sin for us. That's the scapegoat. Scapegoat didn't do any sin. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That's imputation. 
Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. There are so many pictures in the scapegoat of what Jesus Christ did on Calvary. He took our sins on him. By the way, the scapegoat, you know, because of what he represented, you know, he was considered unclean. He was taken out of the camp immediately. Uh, and Jesus as well was crucified outside the city. Isaiah 53.3, talking of Jesus, he was despised and rejected. Isaiah 53.12, uh, speaking of Jesus, he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. Now, let me let's close by going to Hebrews chapter ten. Hebrews chapter ten, beginning in verse one, as we talk about types and anti-types. Remember the old, all the whole sacrificial system in Leviticus, the shedding of blood in Leviticus seventeen eleven says, "Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness." I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offer year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. What? Then why do them? Because of what Jesus would do in fulfilling these types. Verse 2. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. That's important. The, the, the limitation of the Old Testament sacrifice, limitation of the scapegoats, is that they had to do it again the next year. Every year they had to do it over and over. The first goat that was slaughtered and, and shed, the blood shed to cover, atone for the sins of the previous year. You know, there was something they had to continue to do. And so there was still that, the consciousness of sin. And it was never fully effective because if it was, then the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a remembrance of, again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Now look at verse 10. By the which will, now, now he's talking about Christ. This is totally different, folks. This scapegoat, only one time. By the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What a blessing. Jesus Christ fulfilled so many things. Uh, He was the, the lamb that was slain. He was the Passover lamb. He fulfilled so many things. And on that day, folks, when Jesus was crucified, He was bearing our sins, just like that goat would. He didn't deserve it. But folks, our sin has been transferred. If you are a born-again believer, if you've come to Calvary, and that brings up the last point, I want to read to you again from Spurgeon, because I I love the way he words this. And I want to ask you this question that Spurgeon asked. He said, Beloved, are you assured that he, Jesus, carried away your sin. I want to ask you, are you sure? Are you assured that Jesus carried away your your sin? He said, as you look at the cross upon his shoulders, does it represent your sin? 
There is one way by which you can tell whether he carried away your sin or not. Have you laid your hand upon his head, confessed your sin, and trusted in him? Then your sin lies not on you. It has all been transferred by blessed imputation to Christ, and he bears it on his shoulder as a load heavier than the cross. Do you love I love that. Does that, does that give you goosebumps? I mean, think about that. Our sin, folks. You say, well, no, I've never, I've never put my hand on his head. Folks, just understand, if you are saved, you went to Calvary in your mind. You saw Jesus dying for your sins. You saw him literally become sin for you. And when the full depth of what he did weighed on you, you realize, that was me. I'm the one that deserved that. He did it for you. You laid hold of that. You confessed you were sin. That's my sin. And you trusted in him. What does Spurgeon say? Then your sin lies not on you. It has all been transferred by blessed imputation. And then he says this. Let not the picture vanish till you have rejoiced in your own deliverance and adored the loving Redeemer upon whom your iniquities were laid. What a blessed truth. Folks, just picture that. Remember the scapegoat. But, it, but we're not talking about just this past year's sins. We're talking about all of our sins. Put upon Him, gone forever. That's Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank you for the picture of the scapegoat. Thank you for that precious word uh, that you put on the heart of William Tyndale. And Father, we, we usually use that in the negative sense. Somebody, and rightly so, somebody's a scapegoat and they don't deserve it. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ is. But Lord, sometimes we forget that he willingly chose to be the scapegoats. He willingly chose to take our sins on his body so that we might be delivered. So that like Paul, we can say, being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, but the righteousness which is imputed to us by Christ. Father, may these truths grip our mind and sink deep into our heart that we would conduct ourselves as forgiven, born again, blood-washed believers. And we'll thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.